Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box the Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. And it's a very special welcome this week to our 350th show and what we hope is a first-class lineup. Of course, all the regular features are on the rundown this week, including first edition news with Willem van Dender and our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson back after a week joining us throughout the show. Now, it feels like it's only been a few weeks since Man City edged Liverpool for the Premier League title. But the world's premier competition kicks off again this weekend. We'll preview the return of the English top flight in a special bumper edition of Stoppage Time at the end of the show. But first up, I think it's fair to describe Bernie Merrick as one of the elder statesmen of the game in this country. So it's fitting that Football Australia has entrusted the two-time A-League winning coach with, as Vince Regari described, the weighty task of resetting the country's football identity and agenda. In an exclusive for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, he revealed Merrick has agreed to become Football Australia's first chief football officer, a big picture position with a wide-ranging remit that essentially gives him the keys to the on-field future of the Socceroos and Matildas. Well, there's no better way to find out more of the details of what our first CFO intends to do with the role, so Ernie will join us for a chat about the details coming up after all of that. The latest on Socceroos and Matildas with Willem then. Last week, we paid tribute to a man rightfully described as a German football legend, Uwe Zeller, who died at the age of 85. Zeller played in the 1966 World Cup final against England and scored 43 goals in 72 games for West Germany in the week preceding the resumption of the Bundesliga, which Zeller made his own with Hamburg for the better part of 21 years, knocking back lucrative offices to remain loyal. We'll talk to our favourite authority on German football, the Athletics, Raphael Honigstein. And as promised, we'll wrap it up with a special Premier League preview of stoppage time with our good mate, also from the Athletic, Rob Tanner, who may just be in mourning as the news breaks that a player who has earned his own iconic status at Leicester City, Kasper Schmeichel, is about to leave the building. Michael, it's been a long journey uh, with a long way to go. Um, how are you, mate? You've uh, been with me every step of the way. As we celebrate our 350th episode, greetings to all our listeners in Australia and around the world, wherever and whenever you are listening. We love your company on box to box And recently, uh, we've seen some solid growth in our listening audience. So I express a warm welcome to our new listeners, Rob. They're just as good as our old ones. And I hope you are enjoying our podcast as we go from one end of the pitch to the other. Uh, exciting times um, on this 350th episode. Australian football is in great shape. Socceroos have qualified for our fifth straight World Cup finals. Next year, we welcome the world for the FIFA Women's World Cup. And the young Matildas are about to participate in the under-20 FIFA Women's World Cup Costa Rica. So there's much to celebrate, Rob. However, it was not lost on me that in last weekend's Australia Cup match between Sydney FC and Central Coast, there was a throwback to the ugly past of the game. And all I want to say to those presumably Western Sydney fans, I use the word presumably under council, um, who turned up to create trouble, you're not welcome in our game. You don't love football. And I'm expecting a strong response from the APL to identify the participants and root them out of the game. I might bring Willem in here who can explain just what happened and what's been seen on social media and whether we've had any response 
from the uh, Western Sydney Wanderers on this. It was ugly, Michael. It looked like a sort of organised offensive outside the Sydney FC and West uh, and Central Coast Mariners match at Leichhardt Stadium. The usual sort of ugly scenes that we uh, associate with these types of matters, flares, uh, families running away, police uh, sort of involved security, maybe not quite having the uh, the influence that would be liked. But uh, as you mentioned, there were some insinuations going around on social media that these were Western Sydney fans, which would be very disappointing considering the Wanderers weren't even playing. Uh, uh, I'm not particularly willing to put that uh, put that out there myself. But we did reach out to the Wanderers to give them the right of reply. Paul Lederer has uh, declined to come on. He's overseas this week. Uh, and we've also asked the Wanderers if they'd like to address the issue. Uh, and a statement might still be forthcoming. So we might have that for you next week. But yeah, Michael, very disappointing scene, uh, regardless of who was involved. And also a little disappointing that we don't have any comment from the in the game. Uh, I appreciate they need to probably undertake some sort of investigation. but. Um, you know, there's some strong assertions. Um, there's some particular uh, character traits that are typically associated with the Western Sydney. And so I think it's fair to point the finger at them. Uh, we just need uh, those morons to stand up and uh, take responsibility for what was some crazy and unwelcome actions. I think that's enough said, Rob. Yeah, look, uh, I, I think it's a fair point. And to anyone who uh, has listened to this show long enough, uh, I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. Uh, um, I remember uh, with my brother Tim uh, carrying around the blackboard at Cumberland Oval uh, when the Parramatta Eels were playing rugby league in the in the formative days. I know what it's like to uh, to tread um, the streets of, of that great part of Australia. And uh, and it, it really shatters me to think that, um, that, that this behaviour, if it is the Western Sydney Wanderers' uh, uh, so-called support base, um, that they're depicting the, the Golden West of, uh, of, the, of Sydney in, in such a, 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 a poor uh, way when there are so many good things about that part of the city. But uh, these are the sort of headlines that, um, that, that the media, we're in the media, the media grabs and uh, and paints everyone with the same brush. So, yeah. Oh, we love uh, the Wanderers, Rob. We love the yeah. red and black block. We love the atmosphere they bring. Mm-hmm. We want them to come back to uh, Parramatta Stadium in their hunt, in their tens of thousands of people and mm-hmm. make it a cauldron of atmosphere that everybody enjoys. What we don't like is anti-social, moronic, barbaric behaviour. Yeah, Let's no, call it out for what it is. Good, good point. I mean, it's uh, one of my brothers is a Western Sydney Wanderers fan, Pat. He's been on the show before and um, and he loves it. And uh, and and as a fan, a, a proper fan of football and sport in general, uh, doesn't uh, uh, endorse um, any of that sort of garbage behaviour any more than others will. Look, let's move on. We've got a bumper 350th show today. Plenty of news to get through apart from that. So, well, then why don't you uh, get us underway? Yep. The attention of the football world, of course, has been the women's Euros over the past month and England's Lionesses have broken through to lift their first major trophy. They defeated Germany 2-1 and completed that fairy tale home soil triumph. Manchester United's Ella opened the scoring in front of 87,000 at Wembley on 87,000 fans uh, on 62 minutes before Lena Magul forced extra time for the Germans. The Germans were, of course, without Captain Alexandra Pop for the final due to injury, which was a huge shame. Uh, they were chasing their ninth title, but instead it was to be England's title. Rob, a huge uh, storyline and a real shame, really. I mean, these big showpiece events, you want to see the best players play Alexandra Pop couldn't get up. She'd missed the previous two, uh, the previous two European uh, Euros tournaments. Uh, so uh, a great shame. Uh, conversely, Ella Toon's goal worthy of uh, winning any final. Didn't win it in the end. There was a little bit more drama to play out, but uh, a brilliant lobbed finish. I think after the criticism that we rightfully gave um, the English supporters uh, uh, and the organisation around uh, the final of the men's Euros, uh, the bouquets need to be handed out for 
what they clearly learned as lessons um, in terms of how to manage a, a, an event of this stature. But uh, I think the bigger credit goes to, to the fans and the support base that, that just showed the way that football can be passionately uh, supported and uh, and uh, and enjoyed um, in the stadiums with uh, with joy and without uh, drunken drug fueled antics. Uh, I think the only thing that I did notice, and I did search to see if there was any any writing on this, was to, unlike the English men's team, there, there seemed to be a distinct lack of diversity in in the women's side. And there is an article in the Guardian uh, on that very subject that. Uh, um, that there were um, only uh, three black players in the squad, Jess Carter, Nikita Paris and Demi Stokes, and only Carter uh, got any game time. So I think that's certainly an issue for English football because it does speak to the opportunities um, that are created in the game. But, you know, in, in Australia, and we'll talk to Ernie Merrick after the break, um, these are the pathways that need to be set up for everyone from uh, from rich to poor to anyone in between. But, uh, you know, huge congratulations to Rena Wiegmann and, uh, and the entire squad for, for, for stepping up for for. for Facing down the the uh, the, uh, the equalising goal and then and then the match winner in extra time. I tell you, they would have been dreading penalties. Uh, you know, I, I was listening to Matt Rushton on his podcast and uh, he said he had a stone in his gut when that Liza went in. And finally, the Premier League has of course rolled around again. We'll have Rob Tanner on later in the program for a comprehensive preview of that. But for now, the drama with Cristiano Ronaldo and Manchester United continues. Eric Ten Hag, the new boss, is not happy. He slammed the behaviour of Ronaldo, Diego Dello, and others as unacceptable after they left United's pre-season friendly against Rayo Vallecano with 10 minutes to play. Ronaldo took the park for United for the first time this pre-season but was replaced at half-time. And it, of course, is unclear whether he'll partake in their season opener against Brighton. Ten Hag said, we are a team and that means you stay until the end. This is unacceptable for all those involved. Better news, Rob, Lisandro Martinez and Christian Eriksen uh, saw some minutes for United. Interestingly as well, we know Ronaldo is looking for a club to play uh, Champions League football, uh, the big beat through himself, Alan Brazil, an old friend of Australian football, has thrown up Celtic as a uh, as a possibility. Wouldn't that be fantastic? I'm sure uh, Cristiano would just love to play in the Scottish Premier League in the twilight years of his career. But um, I loved um, uh, Ten Hag's uh, uh, brick uh, bats that he threw at, uh, at, at Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, despite uh, all of the hundreds of millions that he's earned and the Ballon d'Ors and the uh, Euro uh, title with Portugal and the, and, and the Euro the European Cups that he's won with all of the various clubs and Tilsit and so on, that he's still not beyond the the, uh, the the sharp tongue of a manager who's in charge. And uh, if there's one thing, and anyone who listens to this show knows I'm not a Manchester United fan, if there's one thing that Manchester United need is a cohesive uh, group under the firm hand of a disciplinarian. And uh, and if that's uh, the, the approach Ten Hag takes to, to the squad, uh, uh, then uh, I, I suspect that we might be just seeing a turning of the corner for that great club. Uh, and Michael, you often say that the best Australians are those who choose to make it their home. And Ernie Merrick's done that and more, and he's done so uh, in a football perspective as well, given his uh, his adult life to the game here in Australia. Robin, very exciting news this week that he is our disruptor. So I think it's time we welcome him in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Willem Ernie has just been appointed by Football Australia as the Chief Football Officer, and he's been kind enough in a very, very, very busy week to, to join us on our 350th show. So stick around. The great Ernie Merrick is on this show with us after the break on Box to Box. Okay, we're talking chemist warehouse, aren't we, boys? Our friends who have been with us since day one. I still remember that day I sat in the chief operating officer of that great business. 
Mario Tascone's office and he agreed to back us and they've been backing us ever since. Stock up and save. At Chemist Warehouse, come on, where's my harmonies? Where's the backing vocals? Come on, boys. There's Bondi Protein. Coach That's it. That's what I wanted to hear. One kilogram assorted variants for $34.99 each. Fat Blaster weight loss shake. But righty back. Get me some Fat Blaster. <laughs> I could use a little bit for the five kilos that I've got hanging around the edges. 14 sachets for $23.09. At Chemist Warehouse, you'll also Ooh. find Wagner, triple strength omega-3 fish oil. You need that for your joints. 150 capsules for $18.99. Microgenics, what happened there? Somebody's racing out the door to get their <laughs> warehouse supplies. Microgenics immune support, 120 Touching. capsules. Fourteen twenty nine and go healthy. Magnesium and sleep if you're edge, you're gonna need that when you get home after all that jet lag. Sixty capsules for fourteen forty nine. Edge, did you want to say thanks to our good mates at Chemist Warehouse back in Oh, thank you, Chemist Warehouse. We love you. And I'll tell you what, that store in Carnegie, because I'm coming home and I'm I my little chemist warehouse stash of stuff that I take away with me in my bag is depleted, Rob. Mm-hmm. You better let him know I'm coming. All right, but I'll get it open early. It'll be like Edge on Boxing Day. Gets in there at 8 a.m. and just charges through the doors. You better watch out if you're anywhere near that vicinity when he turns up. Great savings, Willem, every single day. Every single day, absolutely. Chapel Street, Chemist Warehouse is my one. Always stocked the uh, the Moosehead hair gel, the, uh, the the saline solution for the contact lenses. It's all there. That's it. That's it. From young what about and the old. Stuff and... that keeps you awake or not when you go to um, what's the that's the nightclub up the road there. From the Chapel Street uh, uh, Not with my uh, box-to-box duties. No, you see, he's a professional, Edge. All right, well done. Chemist Warehouse, great friends, great savings every day. Box-to-box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, when we were putting our lineup together for our 350th episode, we, of course, wanted uh, the elder statesman of the game in this country, or one of the elder statesmen of the game in this country, and uh, we picked out Ernie Merrick, of course, because uh, he is the two-time A-League winning coach, and in this past week, he uh, has surprised us all again uh, by being appointed the uh, the grandly titled Chief Football Officer. It sounds appropriate. Uh, it's uh, a title that has a very wide-ranging remit, and we welcome Ernie to the show to, to have a chat about it. How are you, Ernie? Very good, boys. Not sure about the elder bit or the statesman. <laughs> I don't mind the Chief Operations, or sorry, the Chief Football Officer sounds quite good to me. Yeah, but it's, it's said with love, Ernie, of course. And, <laughs> but uh, look, let's go back to, to when James Johnson first, they, they advertised for this role and advertised uh, around the world for this position. And uh, and in the end, uh, he uh, and the executive team at uh, College Street were wise enough to, to look in our own backyard. And, uh, you know, without uh, peeing in your pocket, Ernie, um, you, you have done it all in this country. Um, you've uh, you've been the mentor and guided some of our, our most famous football uh, players and, of course, have uh, your own experience uh, internationally as well. So I mentioned this wide-ranging remit that, that gives you a very broad uh, scope, but you mentioned that your top priority is to review um, Australia's development pathways, and we talk about that a lot on the show. Um, nice to see some of, of our junior squads doing well around the world right now. But um, but what are the, the, the key uh, steps that you feel, admittedly you've got to do the review, but uh, that we need to, to get right uh, as, you, as you undertake this role? Well, well, it's not like 
we're not achieving things. We're actually doing very well. Our, our Socceroos have qualified for the World Cup for the fifth time in succession. The Matildas have been in the top 10 rankings, the FIFA rankings in the world for a long while. They've just dropped to 12. We're hosting uh, the Women's World Cup or co-hosting it with New Zealand next year. So there's a lot of good things happening. It's just a case of we have to make sure we don't fall behind. And uh, if coaches, anyone that's working at, at senior level and rely on their wage every week to feed their family, they know that as soon as they stop learning and professionally developing, they, they don't stand still, they go backwards. And we don't want that to occur in this country. And you just need to look at Asia and the number of programs and the investment of money in Asian programs now. Myanmar defeated our under-16s a couple of nights. Um, More and more teams are very difficult to beat. Doha has got Aspire Academy. Um, When I coached in Hong Kong, I saw the progress of Vietnam and Malaysia and Thailand. So um, there's a lot to do, but initially I just want to have a a look and see what we are doing, uh, what we're getting right, what we need to improve in, and maybe have a look at best practice practice worldwide. Can you explain to our listening audience who are committed football community members just what it's going to take to understand what is the global benchmark for elite development pathways uh, and how long will it take for you to complete the review and when do you think you'll be in a position to articulate to the football community the types of initiatives that we need to um, develop and employ, um, and, and it is, is it as much as having a, a longer term plan? Um, and do you plan to communicate with the football community about um, the direction that you're going to take in um, in establishing policy pathways and activities to make us better? Well, first of all, it's it's important to note that nothing stops uh, just because there's a review being conducted to to progress innovate, change and grow. It's just we'll do that maybe a better in a better way, a faster rate. Uh, to give an example, in 98, uh, 1998, the fellow called Michel Sablon, he rewrote the curriculum and content for the Belgium program. And um, now they're second, they're ranked second in the world in FIFA. I don't know that that's going to happen. With Australia, all I'm saying is it's always worth reviewing content curriculum, but not only reviewing that and looking at what other countries are doing, top nations in the world, whether it be in Europe, South America, but also looking at how they they impart the knowledge via coaches and the type of learning systems that are put in place so that the, the kids develop those skills. For example, I'm very big at coaching technical skills within the context of the game. So that there's always, they're always making a decision when to dribble, when to pass, where to pass, how to close down, tackle areas that strikers need to run into. So the more that we can make up-and-coming youngsters, even at grassroots level all the way through, very comfortable with playing team games and learning a little bit more about game awareness and game knowledge, then there's not only the skills involved, but their mindset involves the decision-making improves. What do you think it says about the evolution of Football Australia that a local person with a lifetime of experience in the game 
from elite development pathways through to professional club football has been um, entrusted with such an important role. I mean, in years gone by, um, there would have been an expectation this role would have been fulfilled by um, maybe somebody from overseas who would have parachuted in to try and make their impact on the game. I mean, just, can you reflect on what it says Football Australia that someone with such a CV and such a deep involvement in the uh, in the local and national game has been entrusted with uh, what's obviously a massively important role? Well, I think it's uh, the level of maturity that, that uh, football has in this country now. It used to be that our Socceroos was coached by Goosehedding or whoever. Now we've had two coaches, Angie Posikoglu and Graham Arnold, who both qualified for the World Cup. And this is our first, first sorry, fifth World Cup consecutively that we've qualified for. And uh, I don't think there's any intention in the short term anyway of putting another overseas coach to coach the Matildas. Sorry, the Socceroos. The Matildas are slightly different. And maybe it was felt that women haven't been given a fair go in this country to really develop their coaching skills. But that's changing rapidly. And Leah Blaney is, is coaching the under-20 young Matildas and doing a terrific job. So it, it's to me, it's like a level of maturity that we've reached in football in this country, that we've got our own people who are also willing to learn and grow. And are some of them, are doing extremely well in other countries. So we're exporting some of our talent, like Kevin Musket, who's, I believe, the league at the moment in Japan. And we all know about Andrew Postacoglu winning the league with Celtic. And uh, um, Monte Muro over in uh, Juventus with the ladies team. So we're growing as a nation in football, not just with the skills, but with the coaches as well. And to me, Coach education is a critical part of what I'll be about. You mentioned before in one of your answers, nothing's, nothing's going to stand still while uh, you undertake the review, and that's true because this week, two big announcements. Trevor Morgan is going to lead the Young Socceroos, and Brad Maloney is going to take on the Joeys, the Junior Socceroos. Can you talk to us about um, those two people? Trevor's obviously had a, a big role federation over the last couple of years, but uh, Brad is obviously going to take on this uh, important task of the young boys. Can you tell us about those import appointments and um, um, what you're expecting out of, out of those? I was to the, uh, a few months ago. So yeah. Brad Malone, I got a checkered history with Brad. Pugsy is his nickname. I tried to come out of the S for Sunshine George Cross. Uh, I got a few players from the AIS at that stage. Frank Talia, Cranny, um, and he was one in my sights. Uh, I couldn't get, I think he went to Marconi instead. He's He's been a very good player, represented Australia at several levels, and he's been coaching over in Malaysia. And to me, he's he's ideal for the role of the 17s. And, um, and you're right, Trevor Morgan's been filling in the whole range of positions. He, he'll, I, he'll still stay in, in some sort of technical role, but we haven't sort of clarified all of that sort of set up yet but uh, Trevor will be with the under 20s and I'm sure he'll continue to do a great job with them. Again, all Australian appointments and even though I, I've got the strange accent, I've been here since 1975 and uh, I passed my citizenship only just <laughs> so so uh, I'm an Aussie as well as uh, part Scott 
your new role is obviously new ground for Australian football, and we've got a sort of general understanding and general wording around what it's uh, going to entail. Uh, but it does seem quite broad brush and open-ended to an extent. Is that something that appealed to you, that it seems to be uh, a blank canvas, or do you already in your mind have uh, it sort of quite drilled down into what your task is going to be? Yeah, I think it is a fairly blank canvas, but there's very specific outcomes that are expected, and uh, most of them are embodied in the 11 principles that the FA board put together. And I'll be focusing on the fifth and sixth principles, which is predominantly about setting world-class environments for for, for players at all ages and um, and for coaches. There, there are, there are. I'll be involved as an advisor for the setting up the second division, for referees' development, a whole range of issues. I don't know where I'm going to start, actually. But um, I, I, it's like when I involved in coach education and I was recently working with Football Coaches Australia to run coaching courses. It's I try not be too prescriptive and say that this, this has got to be done this way. You've got to play with this formation. I, I prefer to go more conceptually and more principled like this is the principle of getting forward how, what's the different ways you can do that how can we achieve this so I'm I'm glad I wasn't sort of given great detail on how to achieve and I don't know if I could be given detail on how to achieve what I want to achieve but it's coming at a good time I mean football is, is becoming massive over the world Kylian Mbappe has just signed a new contract and he's getting a paltry $2 million a week and $100 million signing on fee. So the money is getting bigger and bigger in the sport. The English Premier League is booming, as is most of the other European leagues. The A-League is, is beginning to grow. And uh, judging by some of the results from the Australia Cup last night, we, we've got a lot of very keen amateurs, semi-professional players that are doing a really good job as well and being a threat in the A-League teams. So with, with the World Cup coming for the men in November, December, with the Matildas next year, um, there's just so much happening in football. We, we just need to be a part of it and we need to grow the game as much as we can. And I say that, grow the game, but not at the expense of other codes. I've never been one to compete with AFL or Rugby League or Rugby Union or whatever. I think all the codes are great. There's plenty to go around and it gives more opportunities to youngsters. But we need to we need to give them some of these kids that want to play soccer. We need to give them heroes. We need to give youngsters a go playing in the A-League. And, uh, and judging by what Tony Popovich has done, he's on the right track. That goal that Jake Brimmer scored last night against Western United is one of the best I've seen. And he's just coming on leaps and bounds. We've got more and more players coming through. We need to increase the number. And yeah, it was great to see you on the Australia Cup draw last night, Ernie. I'm sure you allowed yourself a little wry grin as you managed to draw Adelaide United and Adelaide City. You've mentioned just there that you're going to be an advisor for the setup of the National Second Division. So would it be fair to say that you share the optimism of so many around the country that there is the depth in the Australia Cup competition and in the state league competitions around the nation to kickstart that Second Division? Yes, case of when we need to. There's been a lot of modelling, I believe, and just remember, I actually got my feet under the desk. I was announced uh, a few days ago, and um, I officially start next Monday. But uh, I've been up in Sydney discussing a whole range of issues with James Johnson and some of the staff up there. But I would say there's only a place for a second division. In every other country that I know of, they've got a quality 
uh, first division or Premier League have got a good quality second year competition. And we've got the players that can, I mean, some of the teams I've seen locally recently. I was at Heidelberg the other night. They're just coming on leaps and bounds. I watched Bentley Greens uh, a couple of months ago. And some of the players that are coming on are just terrific. And it's great to see them emphasising young players. And that's what we need to do. It doesn't matter how good your training programmes and systems are for coaching and training players at 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. At 18, 19, 20, they've got to start playing at the highest possible level. So that's another challenge for me. Ernie, thank you very much for joining us on our 350-episode milestone. Thanks, boys. It was my pleasure. All the great Ernie Merrick, the newly appointed Chief Football Officer with Football Australia. A big, big task ahead of Ernie, but he is certainly up to it. Okay, stick around. We're going to talk about more Socceroos, more Matildas after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, our 350th episode, and time to talk Socceroos and Matildas with uh, Willem van Dedren. It is, Rob, and it is, of course, for the Green and Gold Army. It's time to book your place in the official Socceroos fan base in Doha ahead of the 2022 World Cup. Don't forget, you can also register your interest ahead of the 2023 Asian Cup, which could and likely will see a new generation of Socceroos looking to make it two out of three, Michael, possibly in South Korea as well, which would be awesome. But that's all in the future. The World Cup is now booked today ggatravel.com.au how are things tracking there for you in bangkok michael well, i'm having a good time in bangkok uh, with my work here but not uh, only that uh, sales are going great guns so if you are thinking about going to the world cup don't delay we're going to put the sold out sign up i imagine in a couple of weeks um it is really the countdown is on uh, we are well and truly um organizing all the spectacular and fun stuff in Qatar, not to mention um, the Socceroos and going to things like an exclusive training session uh, where Arnie will take the boys through and we'll get an opportunity to watch that. Uh, not only that, um, we're going to see some of the best football in the world. And you just never know with the Socceroos. You just never know what's possible. Um, we are so pumped about it. And you're coming, Willem. I am. I'm going to be there. I've just picked up uh, match tickets for another couple of games as well prior to the show, which has gotten me right in the mood. So very exciting, counting down the days. Which games, Willem? Uh, I have just picked up the Netherlands and Ecuador, which I'm very, very excited about. That's a bit of a That's bucket a list one. to see the uh, the Dutch at a World Cup. Uh, and I, as I said, I've only just picked them up, so I'll have to uh, get back to you there. I think Cameroon and Serbia. So, yeah, exciting times. Uh, as flagged last week with Jordan Campbell, there were debuts for Australians right across the Scottish Premiership. Mark Birrigitte turned a few heads with Dundee United in a one-all draw with Kalmarnock, received some positive reports as well in the local press, and they seem to reaffirm that he's their number one. Aaron Moy also made his debut for Celtic in their season opener against Aberdeen. He came on for the last 10 minutes. Ange Postacoglu's side were never really threatened in the 2-0 win and head to Ross County this Saturday. Jackson Irvine, Rob, seems to play for just about the most entertaining club in Europe. St. Pauli had another win, 4-3 this time over Stalin. Uh, Jackson played the full match, which is good news. Uh, and over in Croatia, Anthony Kalik was on the score sheet, crafting out quite the career for himself there with Gorica. To Kevin Musket watch, Yokohama have extended their lead atop the J-League to eight points after defeating second-placed Kashima 2-0. This Sunday at 8pm Australian Eastern time, they play at Kawasaki Frontale, so that's at a pretty friendly time. They're 
They're an Optus sport. They loom as the main threat given they have two games in hand uh, on Yokohama. So they can take another big step there. Uh, Muskets men towards the title. Rob, you've had your eyes on the junior Matildas and they've reached the final of the AWF Under-18 Women's Championships. They had to grind it out with a 1-0 win over Thailand in extra time in the semi-final. Ellero Grady was on the score sheet there. Uh, all positive over there uh, as well. Yeah, no, it was. And um, and talking to Michael Licardo, uh, the father of Isabella. Michael, of course, the brother of John Licardo, our good friend of Hoyts. The family owned that business. And uh, we've been talking about Isabella and uh, and the great uh, under-18 side doing uh, fantastic work in that AWF uh, under-18s championship. And, and I watched a lot of that m- match a- against Thailand. And it was a, a really uh, a, a real quality uh from a technical point of view, um, uh, performance from both sides uh, uh, for the, uh, the young Matildas to, to, to get through that that game and uh, and do it in the, in the fashion that they did in in uh, hostile territory was an excellent result. They've got Vietnam. Well, we're, as we record the show Thursday evening our time, the the, the final is on later tonight, eleven o'clock our time against Vietnam. So uh, so if they if the, both sides have come through with with a very similar. Um, uh, trajectory uh, with heavy wins and, and some close results so if uh, if the young girls can get this job done over, over Vietnam it'll be uh, a huge result and and I think a testament to uh, to what we hope is um, is, is a stronger pathway than than we thought originally was coming through in the in the um, the younger women in, in the country so it's a good it's a good um, sort of segue to um, obviously pick up on what the disruptor said um, Ernie when he was talking about um, all of the uh, advancements in Asia. Rob, um, Samantha Kerr's under-16 team in similar games against Thailand won 9-0 and Remy Seamson's and Melina Ayres' cohort beat Thailand 7-0. So mm. is Thailand getting better or is Australia getting worse? What do you reckon? Look, I, I, I guess I'd ask you that question, Edge. I mean, we know that from the um, the men's point of view that we're only seeing uh, great strides. I mean, we saw Vietnam give Australia an almighty go in that uh, um, that World Cup uh, qualification uh, uh, game in, in Melbourne uh, last year. I've seen the Philippines win um, a title uh, in uh, what was for most countries a full-strength um, Asian tournament most recently in the under um under 23s uh, that Australia sent. It was a, a, a women's senior tournament. So, do, do you agree that the, that the Asian teams, the the, the women, oh, as definitely well the as Asian men? teams yeah. are uh, evolving very quickly because they're coming from a lower base and uh, the participation in the women's game in places like uh, Thailand, Vietnam is going through the roof, probably at a greater degree of um, percentage in improvement than Australia. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my, my question is a bit tongue in cheek. I think they're mm-hmm. they're catching yeah. up, and I do think that um, it's time uh, that the disruptor. Well, well, shall we call him the disruptor? It's probably a bit unfair to do that. No, because, no, no. I, I thought we say it with love, don't we? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit of fun, isn't it? But no, I think it's time for Ernie to really, um, you know, pull back the dooner on all the you know future Matilda stuff and just see, you know, how it stacks up with uh, what's happening around the world. Because I think there's enough evidence now to suggest that there probably needs some changes, and they might only they might not be too significant. But um, at the end of the day, um, I think. Um, the crowd is catching us and uh, like to quote Ernie I think the words he used was uh, what uh, can we do to learn from what else is happening in the world to ensure that we stay ahead and I think that's the that's the big uh, take out of out of um, you know what's ahead for the elite pathway programs in the men 
and also the women. Good luck to Rodeo and the squad. Mission nearly accomplished there. And we're also now just a week away. The under-20 Women's World Cup. Michael, good news for your player stable this week. The 21-player squad has been confirmed and the uh, the players that you paid tribute to last week, Jessica Nash and Paige Zoyce, both confirmed. Sheridan Gallagher is going to be the captain as well as the oldest player in the squad. So looking forward to hopefully providing some positive news on that front this time next week. To close out, we'll have a quick look at the Australia Cup round of 16. It is going to be headlined by an Adelaide derby between United and City. Uh, another notable point out of it is that Sydney United 58 have made the round of 16 for the fourth time, uh, the fifth time. This is going to be their fifth attempt. Uh, they've drawn reigning A-League champions Western United who are quite impressive against Melbourne victory. Uh, so it might be tough there. The draws open up nicely though, Rob, for four NPL sides in particular. Oakley, Brisbane City, Peninsula Power and Green Gully. At least two of those will be through to the last eight. And as we know, the uh, the financial incentive and the, the the spotlight and the national attention that comes uh, with that. So it's going to be Oakley to host Brisbane and Peninsula Power to host uh, Green Gully. Oh, the Suvakia will be getting the Jack Edwards reserve. I said Oakley will be pumping for that one. And uh, imagine if they got through to the quarterfinals, the Cannons. Oh, they're every Greek in Melbourne's second team, Oakley Cannons. They'll be hanging from the rafters, literally. And for anyone who is not familiar with the geography of Melbourne, uh, uh, they will be familiar with the fact that Melbourne claims to be, uh, I think after Athens, the second most populated city of Greeks in the world. If there were an epicentre of Greeks in Melbourne, Edge, it would be Oakley. Yeah, it's Oakley. Oakley and Northcote. And uh, yeah, absolutely. So Oakley Cannons, a great um, traditional grassroots um, uh, NPL club who've really been improving over the years there. Little stadium at Jack Edwards Reserves is one of the best in uh, the competition. A great little grandstand and mounds and, you know, electronic scoreboard. And they have one of the best of luckier of mm. all time out there. I'll tell you what, they take it seriously, Rob. Well, they do. And I, I, this, I can, Damo uh, and, uh, and Willem, I, I can sort of almost hear the drool dripping down Edge's lips oh, after, after I've weeks been missing of missing the sort of luckier at, <laughs> exactly. uh, at Jack Edwards Reserve, I'll tell you. I've been missing it. It's been a long time. Now, Willem, being an eastern suburbs boy as he is, or southeastern suburbs boy, he would have um, found his way to Jack Edwards Reserve from time to time. Yeah, mum and dad are living in Oakley at the moment, so that's just out the the back door. Might want to put a few extra stuff on at Vanilla that night, Michael. That's right. Uh, Vanilla and Nikos Cakes uh, for all those, um, you know, Greeks in Melbourne who get down to uh, Oakley uh, little shopping village there, not to mention there's uh, Meat & Co. uh, Meat Me. You name it. Boys, you get the Greek donuts down there, Rob, too. You'd love the Greek donuts, Rob. I know you do. Just dripping with that syrup. Well, my sister, um, one of six kids, uh, just happened to marry a Greek. Her surname is Anastasopoulos, mate, so I know all about it. Beware beware Greeks bearing gifts, Rob. (laughs) Yeah, good on you. Okay, um, that Trojan horse style. Okay, Willem, well done. Um, (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, Well, back on you there, Edge. Bang. Yeah, that's a joke. That's an in-joke for me. Thank you, Willem. All right, moving along. Uh, Willem, the job is for you, uh, as we always do with uh, what was formerly the FFA Cup and now the Australia Cup, is to get a guest from one of the clubs uh, who we hope are going to perform a cup set in the next round of, uh, of this tournament. Are you up to the task? Yeah, we'll get that done. No dramas. Okay. Right, I want you to that. get the block. Who cooks the Suvlakia at Jack Edwards Reserve? <laughs> All right. If you mention Jack Edwards Reserve one more time, mate, I'm feeling I'm going to take the long handle. Uh, and it's not <laughs> Either that or the Heidelberg running man, Michael. Can you get him on through your connections? Oh, Billy. We get Billy on. Don't worry about that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Nothing gags. 
for these 350 episodes in. Let's keep up the standards, boys. Well done, gentlemen. Okay, we're going to uh, get uh, Europe-style after the break. Um, Raphael Honigstein, he's come over the, on the show uh, from time to time over the journey. He's one of the great journalists, uh, one of the great podcast guests uh, on a lot of the stuff we listen to. Uh, he's from The Athletic. He was introduced to us by our good mate, Rob Tanner. We're going to talk about Uwe Zeller, uh, the German legend who passed away at 85 years old last week. We're going to talk Bundesliga, and I think we might even squeeze a question in on uh, the German reaction to the Women's Euros final. So stick around. Raphael Honigstein next on Box to Box. Do you love cooking? Do you love eating? Well, we know the boys on this show do. Well, if you do, pay attention to this special message from our friends at Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. What's better during the cold weather than getting in the kitchen over the weekend and cooking while you're watching the football? If you're like me and you wake up on a Sunday to a media blackout, and spend time on Sunday watching the mini-matches, the highlights, and obviously a full game if it's Liverpool playing, then get prepared to do something productive with your time by shopping on Saturday and cook up something delicious for dinner on Sunday evening while you're catching up on the games, with maybe a few leftovers for sandwiches during the week with all your favourite herbs and spices from our friends at Hoyts. How about this? A mouth-watering Sunday roast lamb. Make yourself a tasty rub, beautiful, with Hoyts smoked paprika, thyme, basil leaves, ground cumin, curry powder. Get it in your mortar and pestle, rub it into the lamb with some oil. Yeah, exactly. Remember, refill any of your empty spice jars with Hoyt's value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's. Available at Coles, Woolworths and Gould, independent supermarkets. Edge, uh, hungry there. We talked about the Tuvalakis uh, before in this show. Um, I think this will uh, hold up to that standard. Oh, I think it will, absolutely. Uh, I just love how uh, you got to get your, what did you say, your pestle and mortar and just whack them all in there and give it a good rub. Yeah, that's it. The mortar and pestle, grind them all together. Willem, you know all about that. Yeah, absolutely. I thought you were going to say get it in ya, and then you said your mortar and pestle, but uh, that comes later, I suppose. <laughs> exactly, it does. To our great friends at Hoyts who've joined us walla, recently walla, walla, walla. Exactly. On for our 350th episode. Johnny Accardo, you are a great man. Get the Hoyts and you'll be happy. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, I mentioned off the top of the show that last week we paid a brief tribute to a man rightfully described as a German football legend, Uwe Zilla, who died at the age of 85. Zilla played in the 1966 World Cup final against England, scored 43 goals in 72 games for West Germany and was a legend for Hamburg over the course of 21 years knocked back some lucrative offers and stayed loyal with his club. He uh, is a legend, an icon, and a man who uh, whose passing has been uh, noted around the football world. And to, to talk about uh, his passing, as well as the Bundesliga, uh, we uh, are joined by the Athletics' Raphael Honigstein. How are you, Raphael? I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, really good, really good. And uh, I, I loved your a bit article um, where, where you reflected on, on Zilla's... Uh, iconic status in in England that um, you know that 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 love for him as a person uh, was was transcended he the love that um, that uh, he had as a footballer he was a he was a, a German um, icon through and through beyond the game well that's exactly right and I think it's quite rare that somebody transcends the fandom the support of his own team towards the national team but then even rarer if you have 
the love of a football nation than to win over the hearts and souls of the entire nation, people who are not really interested in football. Everyone knew Uwe Zeller or everyone felt as if they knew Uwe Zeller because he was often on television, he was often on talk shows, he was often talking about being worried about his uh, beloved team Hamburg not doing so well. And unfortunately, they did get relegated um, a couple of years ago. But he did it in a humility and in a way that everyone could relate to. Um, I guess this is both a function of his personal background, you know, born to a, a former player, somebody worked in the docks, um, very down to earth, uh, blue collar, salt of the earth type guy. But also when he was a superstar, Football was different. Um, he was still a semi-professional, making money on the side, representing Adidas, selling their gear in uh, in Germany, uh, traveling sometimes around, selling selling stuff um, as a wholesale distributor. Um, and we didn't see yet that big remove, that big distance between those who played and those who were in the stands. You could still feel as if this guy was really one of you. And that's why I think he is so much loved and uh, so sorely missed. And the class that he managed to uh, display during some of the bleakest times, he played in four uh, World Cups, scored in all four of them, 58, 62, 66 and 70. And in that uh, iconic era of West Germany, he he unfortunately didn't didn't play in a, in a winning World Cup final. Uh, that was uh, something that um, he, he seemed to carry lightly throughout the rest of his life. Yeah, he didn't uh, ever, I think, cut a figure that seemed to be remorseful or regretful about missing out in that golden generation. He was the golden generation before the golden generation. He was the guy that kind of summarized everything that people loved in those years between the two World Cup wins from 54 to 74, there were no trophies, but it was Uwe Zeller. And people loved the team and loved him just as much. And as you said, I think being the captain in the 1966 final, these days you would probably have a minor riot on the pitch with the referee being harangued and weeks if not months of media coverage in those days even though it was a hugely important thing Sela just kind of shrugged it off and felt well you know it wasn't to be and there's this figure of there's this photo of him leaving leaving the pitch while everybody around him celebrates looking absolutely dejected and and, and spent as a force physically but he's just accepting his fate almost in good grace. And he set the tone, I think, for the country on the whole, where, of course, we like to joke and we like to sort of think back and, oh, we were robbed. And, uh, you know, Wembley is is uh, is forever known as that uh, dodgy final, but it's not really said with any degree of anger or malice. Um, and I think that's also partly down to him setting the example. Yeah, and as a... Uh... A club player for Hamburg, he uh, 
he uh, was a, a player of another era, wasn't he? Um, that uh, uh, the story that you that you recount in in your obituary of uh, Eleni Herrera's Internazionale um, uh, approaching him with uh, a, a fantastically lucrative offer in 1961, and uh, he declined. Herrera uh, thought he lost his mind, but he said, "I'm not a wandering bird." Yeah, and that, that is a German expression, but really, what it means is that I know where I belong, and I belong in Hamburg. Mm. And other players of his generation went. You know, you had uh, Haller playing for Juventus. You had uh, another couple of guys who who wanted to make more money. I mean, that that was really the bottom line because these German players they were making a few thousand marks at the time. Of course, that was worth more than it is now in real terms. But for somebody like Inter to come around and say, here's a million Deutschmarks just for you to sign. And then to say, no, I think I belong in Hamburg. This is where I'm happiest. This is where I want to play my football. Was was seen as a, a, a real commitment and sort of going out of your way. And perhaps it's best summarized by, you know, professional football wasn't ultra professional at the time, even when it came to, to money or especially when it came to money and, furthering your career other things family your local connections your love for the club still took precedent and again that's why i think he's so revered because there's this nostalgia for this slightly more innocent and uh, and different era of pre-modern football that's forever um based around him as a person rafa beautiful words on on zayla uh, i i remember watching videos as a as a kid in England and remembering that iconic backward header that he did in that famous game against England in 1970 which which changed the destination of that game it was in color compared to the uh, the original 1966 so those vivid uh, vivid shirts is great memories and it almost feels a little trivial to be going on to talk Bundesliga today but we shall do that given that you're here you um, inevitably we'll start with with Bayern, you have to with the, the Bundesliga. Uh, Lewandowski out, um, Mane in, and obviously Delict's fabulous defender who's come in from Juventus. Um, where are Bayern at? Is this a, a stronger version of Bayern this season? It's not easy to answer. I think the squad looks better, the squad looks deeper, but there is that big question at Bayern whether we can play as a club, as a team, without a number nine. This is not something we're really used to. We had one year under Pep Guardiola when Mario Götze played there. It wasn't that great a success. Of course, they won the league, uh, completely dominated, but in the Champions League, it sort of fell short. And as much as the club want to back Julian Nagelsmann, who's very much a fan of having a bit more variety, a bit more flexibility up front. And they have so many attacking players who can change, who can have different positions. There is, I think, a board level, that little, little nagging doubt, that little question mark whether this works for for Bayern and the team. If you speak to the players, I had a chance to speak to Leroy Sané recently in an interview for The Athletic that's out uh, today, they seem very excited. They seem very happy. They they feel it's going to take some work. It's going to take more work on the pitch as well because you have to change more. You have to create more space. There isn't this guy that's always there that you can always hit almost blindly. But it 
does open up more possibilities as well for others to take to the fore. And there was a sense in the team, which of course was never really publicly mentioned, but you didn't have to dig very hard to find it, that last season Lewandowski had become, had had gone from being self-centered and egotistical as you expect centre-forwards to be, perhaps that one step further where he seemed to be caring about his own game and his own goals a little bit more than than usual. And there was resentment for that. And there was also, I think, not that much love for his very public extraction operation and the way he conducted himself. And I think in the end, everyone was sort of happy that he went in the team. So now is, is an opportunity for others to shine, for others to score more goals. And if the Super Cup game against Leipzig is anything to go by, where they played in a 4-2-2-2 formation, with really almost four forwards on the pitch, always changing, it looks actually really exciting. And they scored five goals and it could have been easily seven or eight. Yes, of course. And Mane getting on the score sheet in, in that game as well. They'll certainly hope that he can bring his Liverpool pedigree into Bundesliga and the Champions League. But another player that caught attention was uh, Jamal Musiala. Uh, for for us in Australia, this guy maybe hasn't come onto our radar yet. So could you just give us a bit of an overview of uh, this player split loyalties, of course, potentially on an international basis, but very much a, a buying man now. Tell us about Jamal. Well, he's he's wonderful, a wonderful player who is still so young, but plays with a maturity and with a consistency that is at times quite frightening. Uh, of course, you know, coming through a bind under Hansi Flick, then going following him uh, when he changed jobs and now a starter for Germany in what is a very congested attacking or central midfield area because he can play both. He can play as a number eight, as a um, as a number 10 or on the wings. And he has that silky, smooth, close control, runs at players and does things where I'm not even sure he understands how he does it, but it's very difficult for, for opponents to keep up. And he was the outstanding player um, against Leipzig. And that is a with a starting team that has Müller and that has Mane and that had um, Serge Gnabry up front and and wonderful players like Kimmich behind him. He was the guy that stole the show. And Julian Nagelsmann came very close in saying he will definitely start the first game of the season on Friday. He was that good. And I think in the long run, he is going to be the guy who might cause problems for t- Thomas Müller because Thomas Müller, of course, has made that sort of Half halfway house position between a number 10 and a forward his own at Bayern. Um, it could be that in this 4 2 2 2, there is space for both of them, but I think eventually it looks to me as Musiala will be the, the heir of, of that particular position and also perhaps of the, the role that Miller plays in, in keeping everything together. He's a different character, much quieter kid, but wonderful, wonderful player. Uh, Germany are incredibly happy that they managed to snatch them from snatch him from the jaws of the FA and uh, and turn him. Um, and I think we can expect big things from him, not just for Bayern, but also uh, when it comes to November and Qatar. Thinking about some of the other possible challenges, um, Dortmund obviously without Haaland, another another big name striker leaving Bundesliga, and of course his 
replacement Halla going through a terrible set of circumstances, which you could uh, elaborate on. And obviously Leipzig, another one, obviously in that 5-3 loss, they're trying to bring Werner in. I don't know if that's going to be possible, but are those are the two that if there is going to be a challenge from somewhere, will it be those? That is, I think, the 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 most uh, natural avenue of, of resistance, if you will. I mean, Dortmund have strengthened. They have bought some really good players, especially in, in key positions like centre-back, where Schlotterbeck has come in, where Niklas Süle has come in. Uh, they've got really good uh, number six in Oshan from Cologne, who perhaps provides a bit of steel that was missing. Um, unfortunately, it might still be a little bit short. I think there isn't that depth in the team. I think up front with the uh, really terrible news of Sebastian Allaire missing the next few months because of his treatment um, with testicular cancer, we would have to see what happens. And I still think that they are way short when it comes to pushing Bayern all the way. There's no excuse for Dortmund when it comes to beating the teams below them more regularly. That's where they drop too many points. You can lose against Bayern twice and then you should still beat most sides below you as Bayern do and keep much closer contact. That's where they've fallen short in recent years. But I think it ultimately won't quite be enough. Um, others have pointed at, at Leipzig. Uh, there is a chance that uh, maybe Timo Werner will come back, which would be, I think, a game changer for them because they lack, if anything, they, they lack a, a centre-forward type of orchestra. And Kunku, of course, has done so well of, uh, filling that gap with uh, with all his goals and his trickery and his fantastic performances, which have won him the the accolade of of Germany's players or player of the year last season, and they have real depth, but perhaps not quite the highs that that Bayern have, perhaps not quite the, the individual characters that that Dortmund have in some positions, uh, but the squad is very deep and is very decent. So. Those three, some people are looking at Bayer Leverkusen. I'm not 100% convinced, although they've, they've looked very good last season. So it'll be very difficult. I think if Bayern play anywhere near their normal level and in Nagelsmann they have a fantastic coach and now they have a better squad than last season, I think on the whole, it's going to be very, very tough. There's uh, plenty of Australians have made their name in the Bundesliga, not the least of which was Aiden uh, Rustic, who played uh, for Frankfurt, uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, in that uh, that final, and uh, and was a hero for uh, Australia, helping us get through to the World Cup uh, in. Uh, the uh, the playoffs uh, most recently in Qatar, so uh, we uh, we love the Bundesliga over here and the colour from the stands and um, and the ownership profiles of, of the clubs as well. Uh, before we let you go, though, uh, just uh, you know we did start off talking about Uvazela and uh, his uh, you know laconic um, and uh, and acceptance of of that controversial Jeff Hurst goal back in 1966. But fast forward to a week ago, and uh, I'm not sure that the same level of phlegmatic response was there from uh, from Martina Vos Tecklenburg when uh, Leah Williamson clearly handballed in the in the penalty box uh, on the 25th minute and uh, uh, had that goal uh, or at least penalty been awarded and a goal uh, uh, ensued that game could have played out very differently yes of course I mean I think it's normal when you lose the the final to a single goal uh, in extra time that you go back over one or two situations and think what if and I think the anger here comes not so much from the penalty not being given, but from the sense that it was sort of dismissed, even though VR was there. I think there are probably good reasons why you want to not give a penalty. There was a couple of deflections. The arm, you could say, was in a natural position. But unfortunately, 
all of discussions sort of happens after the fact. And I think if somebody would have come out and explained themselves, if somebody uh, perhaps would have referred uh, the referee to, to a view and she could have then looked at it and say, you know, for those reasons, I don't give it. I think it would have been easier for uh, Martina Foss-Tecklenburg to accept the decision. But I think she distinguished between finding it difficult to accept the process and the outcome, but actually was very generous and, and very gracious in accepting the the overall outcome of the game, saying England deserved to win and uh, this is the sort of thing that happens. And I think that is actually most people's reaction. You don't see a uh, pitchfork mob turning up outside the British Embassy mm. uh, in Berlin trying to uh, you know storm storm the building in anger. Um, you'd expect the tabloids to to drum up a bit of emotion, but my sense is that this is not shared really by too many people who think this is a massive uh, sporting injustice. Uh, people have seen enough football games to know that decisions can can go one or the other. There was indeed one uh, a tackle that could have gone easily. Um, in favour of England and it could have had a penalty in the first half and at that time Germany got lucky. So I don't think it is actually going to leave much of a bad taste. You saw people coming out in their thousands to work on the team when they came back on, on Monday and I think that is the the lasting image of this this competition. Uh, Germans fell in love with this, with this team, mm. they supported them, they appreciated what they did and yes, it would have been nice to win the final but can't win every time even if you're Germany. <laughs> and as we know, the uh, the German women's side, um, well, as well as the men, have got a, a pretty handy record, having won uh, eight uh, in their previous eight uh, visits to the final. So, uh, uh, mate, um, I think you've said it pretty well, and and, and a good uh, postscript to to what was a, a classy tournament all round uh, after the chaos of the the men's Euros last year. Well, Rafa, we'll let you go. Uh, before we do, I just want to double check that uh, I may have got that idiomatic expression, I'm not a wandering bird, correct? Is it, uh, ich bin kein Wandervogel? Is that uh, how yeah. I pronounce it? Yeah, ich bin kein Vogel, yeah, that's it. There you go. My, my German teacher from uh, from primary school, Mr. Sheenan would have been, or Herr Sheenan would have been very proud of me. Excellent. Excellent, Rafa. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, we'll watch the Bundesliga with interest and uh, and uh, enjoy listening to you on the various podcasts we hear you on around the world and obviously your great copy um, in The Athletic over the course of the upcoming season. Thank you so much. Raphael Honigstein from The Athletic. If you don't subscribe to The Athletic, then uh, we've said it plenty of times. Do yourself a favour. You'll get the best uh, sports reporting in the world and the best sports reporting on the Bundesliga from Raphael himself. Okay, stick around. more to talk about. Um, we've got one of uh, Raf's colleagues from The Athletic joining us after the break. The great Rob Tanner, our good mate. He's been with us since day one in our 350th episode. He's joining us to preview the English Premier League next on box to box Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this would be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And this is our 350th episode. It's the last piece of the puzzle for the show it's stoppage time of course and there is no way in the world we would have had a milestone episode of this show without our good friend from the athletic rob tanner and we are joined by rob to to take a look at the premier league season that's about to kick off this weekend how are you rob i'm great congratulations guys 350 not out 
Uh, thanks, mate. Well, uh, we're not quite Don Bradman yet, um, but uh, we'll, we'll keep. We'll just keep knocking around the signals, singles, and uh, and try to, to to keep on going. Rob, um, mate, it's um, a season uh, that we're all so looking forward to with the, obviously the Winter World Cup. But uh, you know, coming off the back of uh, of last time round, it was a proper title race, uh, relegation uncertainty, Europe spots all decided on the last day. Uh, can we expect a repeat of that? Um, I hope to think so with the likes of Forest coming up for the first time in years. Uh, absolutely, I think you can. I, I mean, the Community Shield whetted the appetite in many respects. Liverpool Man City going head-to-head. Our chance to look at some of their their new signings like Haaland and Darwin and, and that's really got people excited as well. And although COVID has sort of affected the transfer market um, in many ways, Premier League clubs... I still, well, a lot of most Premier League clubs, I mean, I cover Leicester, the only team in the top five European leagues that haven't made a sign in this summer. But the rest seem to still be spending big amounts of money, but certainly the big six. So, and I think, I think although it was a two-horse race last year, you might get a few um, contenders as well, pushing them a little bit harder. Yeah, why don't we talk about those contenders? Um, I think the general consensus of the... Uh... Of, of the punditry is that it's going to be from the big six again. So the likes of Chelsea yeah. and, and Spurs and Arsenal and Manchester United. We'll just start with them before we talk about any bolters. Uh, who's best equipped to, to assault that um, duopoly that the other two have at the top of the league? Well, I tell you who's had a really good pre-season. And it's Tottenham. Uh, they went down to Korea and, and we saw the footage of how Conte was working them down there. And there was... You know, signs of Harry Kane visibly being ill from the the, the, the fatigue of it all. And I, I think they're going to come into the season in great shape. Conte has always been threatening to leave Spurs if he doesn't get his way. He's been given his way now, so he will be truly judged this season. Um, so I think Tottenham could be a dark horse. But if you look at some of the other clubs that are spending huge amounts of money, Arsenal have really gone for it as well. It'd be interesting to see how they get on. I mean, they've got the, the lad Vieira from Porto, who looks a real world-class player, a Bernardo Silva type um, attacking midfielder, which is something they've been they've been lacking. So they'll, they'll be interesting to, to watch as well. Chelsea are downplaying their chances, but Thomas Tuchel, you know, he, he, he's, he can be that way. Um, but I still think they will be strong and they're not finishing the transfer market either with a month to go. Uh, it's the usual suspects. The one out of the big six, I think I've got, I still have worries about because they seem to be an absolute uh, madhouse of a football club at the moment. Is uh, Manchester United, uh, Old Trafford, uh, um, and they have made some some signings. I mean, Ericsson's a good one to get in from Brentford, um, but and a new manager, so it's sensibly unknown about them, but. There still seems to be so much work to be done now. I can't see them being able to bridge that gap. Well, of course, Leicester, you can maybe give us a summary of that with, of course, um, another iconic player and one of the champions leaving the club in the last 24 hours. But you'd also expect the likes of Aston Villa to to build with some expressive signings. And, of course, Newcastle, who are trying to nab you know a couple of top Leicester players so uh, are those the yeah. sort that might be able to break into the top six and West Ham have, have quietly done a lot of business as well I would add them to that um, they've spent a lot of money this summer so and they've had a good pre-season as well I mean they've, they've worked very hard as well Villa got all their business done very early in the window um, they've looked like they've they've strengthened they've certainly Certainly strengthened defensive midfield, which was an area that they needed to do. Um, they had the marvellous Nakamba filling that role, but he was not so marvellous for them. So they've got uh, they've got some new signings in. 
Uh, yeah, it's going to be Leicester. We don't know really what's going to happen with, with, with Leicester. Brendan Rogers said halfway through last season after the defeat at Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup that this squad had reached its natural uh, age. It needed a refresh. He wanted five or six new players in, but he knew he had to get five or six out, get all the superfluous players out to create space for these new signings. Uh, and until Casper went uh, yesterday, there's um, there has been no outgoings, no incomings. It's been a frozen transfer window, for, which has upset the fans a lot and, and certainly lowered expectation for the season. But I don't think necessarily that's a bad thing. If they can keep the players fit we're missing last season the likes of Fafana and keep them out of the clutches of Chelsea and some of the other clubs that are, are looking at their talent they could still be strong this season uh, another season together I think sometimes I mean we're going to see it with Nottingham Forest 11 new signings coming in it takes time for them to gel get to know each other uh, and it, it can be disruptive so, so sometimes see more if you don't if you don't have a lot of signings coming in those players that you can work with and Brendan always says he's a uh, he's a coach that develops He's going to have more time to develop these players and let's see if he can do it. Rob, I'm going to ask you about West Ham. They made great strides last year. They've got Manchester City in the first round. But what are your expectations of the Hammers and can they make further advances this season? I think so. I mean, the, the core of the squad, I mean, Bowen and Rice, they, you know, they, they're, they're still there. They're still developing as well. They're young players um, that are, are growing. Uh, David Moyes has got a great work ethic with them. Um, they've made signings. They've spent money. I think. I think they should be quietly optimistic. I mean, they spent eighty-two million pounds, which, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, is 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 no small investment in the side. So uh, they have got the G- Gianluigi Scamarca coming in as well from Sassuolo in, in Serie A. So he's he's somebody that's um, scored a few goals in Italy. Whether he can do that in the Premier League, there's always a, an element of adjustment. But yeah, I think West Ham will be one of those that will be knocking on the door of the, the top six, seven uh, next season. The, the, whether they've got enough to get over the line, especially with so many of the big six strengthening, uh, we'll see this season. But um, And also they'll have, as you go up a level as well, you will have the complications of players being internationals, going away to the World Cup. and what Sides lower down the leagues will have the, the chance to, to, to refresh and, and relax for a month. So... Um, but I, th- I think they'll definitely be up there and I think they'll be a team to watch this season. Well, another team that we are interested in is the cashed-up uh, Saudi-moneyed Newcastle United, uh, St James Park. What are, the f- are the fans up and about and are, the, are they uh, expecting a, a rise, a continual rise up the table? Uh, what do you expect from Newcastle this season? Well, first of all, there's going to be loads of expectation on Newcastle because as soon as the, the Saudis came in, with all their, their their financial clout, people thought they could automatically go out and spend millions and millions this summer and rebuild that team overnight into a side that's going to be challenging. You can't do that with financial fair play regulations. They've got to be careful or they will fall foul of that. So you've seen a more measured approach to the to the, to the the transfer window uh, this season. I mean, they've got Matt Target in, Nick Pope, Sven Botman, um, about £60 million spent. Um, that you know, they've, they've, it's been a steady sort of progression, and it would be a number of seasons, I think, before we see Newcastle start to fulfil their potential under this new ownership, which still is a very controversial ownership in the Premier League. So, especially with all the the, the, the fuss about uh, live golf and the, the Qatar World Cup, you know, human rights abuses. They're, they're, there's still those elements around the club as well. But I think the fans in general seem very, very excited, and that can carry. Newcastle a long, long way because whenever I've gone in the past, there's always been an air of um, disappointment with the ownership. There's been uh, issues with the, the manager and the fans and that can work the other way. 
but when the fans are all behind Newcastle and St James's Park is rocking, it's one of my favourite grounds to go to. Um, yeah, it'll be that they should be uh, they should be strong at home. Whether this season they are going to be ready to challenge, I I, I, th- I think they still spend some money in this transfer window and strengthen between now and the the, the, the end of the window. I mean they've been linked to, well they've not just been linked they've they've gone for James Madison tried to get James Madison from Leicester but Leicester won't sell him the love no money unless it's an absolutely ridiculous bid and as I said with financial fair play uh, they've still got to be careful how much they spend but yeah I think top half of the table finish for Newcastle this season and then they can look build again the group I want to talk about is the kind of the big clubs that are potentially uh, looking over their shoulder and none bigger and probably more worried than Everton Football Club that oh, they you yeah. know they they haven't been making hay in the transfer market either like like Leicester they've lost their best player they barely scraped uh, through uh, the re- out of relegation last year and I, I still think there's a feeling that um, Frank Lampard is still a bit of an untried quality or quantity in the Premier League so do you think? Uh, Everton, uh, you know, fans have got cause for concern this season. Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, he's also the favourite with the bookmakers to be the first manager sacked. You know, the the, the old sack race that always starts at the the start of the season as well. They'll be interesting to see Everton. Um, I'd have my concerns about them. They haven't really done a lot to that squad, the squad that struggled so much last season. They've lost with Charleston, as you said. They've brought in uh, Dwight McNeil, who is a player quite like Burnley, but whether he's the quality to take them to a level, we'll see. James Tarkowski's come in on a free as well, and they've got Ruben Vinegre on loan. So there's um, that squad's not really changed from the one that struggled last season. Uh, so it's whether Frank Lampard can get a different tune out of them. He struggled last season to do it. I think there's a lot of people think he'll struggle again. Southampton, who've obviously been in the Premier League for a, uh, a, a while now, Leeds United, of course, flirted with relegation last season. I mean, obviously, they're more recently reinstated into the Premier League. But these are two other big clubs. Jesse Marsh is a new manager. Um, and obviously, Harsen Hootel's been there a while. But you just wonder with Southampton, have they been doing enough to regenerate this team? What are your thoughts on those two? Well, they've made seven signings, Southampton. So they're trying to do something. I mean, I know the head of recruitment there, Martin Glover, who's coming to Leicester at the end of this transfer window, He's been working there, but then he's been put placed on garden leave. So that hasn't helped their cause as well. And they've not had a particularly good pre-season. I think they've only won one of their five games. I know you can't always uh, take a lot, draw a lot from those because a lot of them are, are exercises in fitness. But um, it's still, it, if you've got momentum going into the season from a good pre-season, that can play a, a part as well. So I think you're right. I think Southampton will be a side that will struggle. They'll be hit and miss. Uh, you know, you'll get the odd performance. They've still got James Ward-Prowse, who's an excellent Young midfielder, well, it's not young anymore. Uh, in there, and he provides a lot of goals from uh, from separate pieces, and they've still some players in there, some talents, but um, I don't think they've done enough to strengthen significantly for this season. So it'll still be a season of concern for them, but I still think they'll have enough to to stave off relegation. And Rob, before we let you go, we couldn't uh, say goodbye without a, a prediction. Um, the, the city go back to back. The Pep Guardiola. Reputation just builds and builds. Do, do Liverpool uh, uh, finally uh, get the better of them uh, in a head-to-head clash, or is there a bolter somewhere that uh, that we're not seeing? Does Conte uh, turn Spurs around? Arteta, even I hesitate to say, with uh, Derek and Edge uh, desperate to see Arsenal do well again. I think it'll be more than a two 
horse race this season. I do think a Spurs or a Chelsea could push the other two, but I still think it will come down to the you know the final furlong. It will be Man City and Liverpool going head to head. My concern about Man City is when they signed Haaland, I thought brilliant. They've got the centre forward they've been missing. They've been trying to get Kane out of Spurs. They couldn't do it. They got Haaland in, but then I watched them in the Community Shield, and they weren't playing to his strengths. They were playing how they've always played with a with a false nine or Jesus or Aguero, very patient, playing it wide. And he was making runs, trying to get in the sides of the centre halves, wanting the ball to come into the box, and it wasn't coming in. So they've got to adapt to him. That's why I'm going to go with Liverpool for the title. I think although they've lost Sadio Mane, they've they've recruited well. Diaz, Darwin, they've kept Salah, big contract. Um, I think that I think Liverpool will. Will t- uh, and they'll they'll be energised by by the disappointment of last season as well, missing out on the title after such a great campaign. I think it'll be Liverpool. Yes, Rob, I think so too, <laughs> uh, mate. Rob, thank you for coming on, not just uh, this week, but for all of the years. Uh, we wouldn't have got to three hundred and fifty episodes if it hadn't have been for you. Not only uh, your contributions to the show, but also the great introductions that you've given us to the uh, the, the uh, diaspora of the uh, the athletic football community who've been so generous with their time over the last few years, mate. So uh, thanks again on our 350th show and uh, uh, enjoy the season ahead, mate. Uh, we'll talk to you plenty of times um, over the coming months. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Yeah, not at all. The great Rob Tanner, our mate from The Athletic, uh, he's such a top bloke. So, boys, uh, we'll wrap it up there. Um, it's been an extended stoppage time, but, uh, but Edge... Uh, Geez, we started talking about this show seven odd years ago, um, and uh, yeah, it took us a while to get it up, didn't it? And uh, but uh, you know, fast forward all these years later, we've got three hundred and fifty shows in the can. No, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, we, we've had a journey. We've had some incredible people on our program. We hope those people that have tuned in randomly from time to time, or the loyal bunch of listeners that uh, I bump into from time to time around uh, the world who listen to us regularly, who enjoy the program, we thank them so much. We hope you enjoyed it. We love doing it. We, we, we wouldn't be doing it unless we loved it. We love talking to people like Rob Tanner, Raphael Honigstein, all of the people in Australian football that we've had on the program from Socceroos, Matildas, coaches, uh, leaders in the game, administrators. Uh, we hope that we could do a great job of bringing um, everything that happens in the game to a wider audience. And those people who want to understand uh, the detail of all the things we talk about, uh, we hope you've enjoyed the journey as much as we have, Rob. Exactly. And uh, and, and, and an acknowledgement to uh, to one of the foundation members of the show, Mark Van Aken, who was with us for the early years. But of course, Dean Hennessy. Dino was with us for most of the time in the club. And uh, uh, he's uh, he's a great mate of ours still. And, um, and he'll be hoping that his uh, beloved Derby County can... Uh, Start the, the 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 battle back up the uh, the pyramid um, to uh, where uh, whether they believe they rightfully belong. Derek, thanks again, mate. You've um, you've come in over the last few years and uh, you know stepped up the cerebral quality of the show. And uh, <laughs> uh, mate, we, we, yeah, we love your style. We just needed to add another Arsenal supporter, uh, one who mm. could um, you know provide provide a bit of ballast to the uh, Liverpool bias that gets pumped out on this program from time to time. No, I'm glad to facilitate that. And uh, yes, good luck to Arsenal on Friday night against Crystal Palace. And yes, congrats everyone on the 350. I've not been there for all of it. I think maybe just over a 100. And I remember interviewing you two, I think, for the 250th show. So geez, that's gone quick. Um, but yeah, it's been great. Thanks. 
Yeah, and uh, thank you, mate. And uh, uh, I know you guys think that just because Jesus has arrived that there might be some divine intervention, but... Uh, Is Willem there? Can we say hello, goodbye I, to Willem? I, I, I was about to. I was about yeah. to, Ed. She's jumping in. Well, look, look, we wouldn't have had a 350th episode. Without me interrupting you exactly. on at least hey. <laughs> so Willem, So Willem goes back to the World Cup in Russia, of course, when uh, he was uh, went behind the years, young cub reporter uh, still at university, and uh, Edge spotted some talent in there and said, Mate, um, we need a uh, a news hound on on the show, and uh, you joined us, and you've you've been uh, just improving every single week, mate. Doing a brilliant job, and uh, a professional journalist now. I'd like to thank you to you and Michael as well, Rob, for picking me up and giving me that opportunity and guiding me through. Uh, and yeah, to think we're almost a full World Cup cycle through uh, since I met you at the uh, the Russian World Cup, Michael. And that, I suppose, is one of the great things about this show. We do bite off a lot and trying to cover just about everything, but that also means that there's getting a bit emotional. That there's uh, that there's plenty to uh, to regenerate uh, each and every week. And yeah, we've got another World Cup to to cover. So the next five months in particular are going to be very very exciting. Yeah, we sure do. And uh, and the the man who was originally pushing the buttons, if I'm reflecting and thanking people who've been involved in the show, of course, Nigel Slater for many years. Uh, thank you, Nigel, if you're listening. But uh, Damien Tardio, he is uh, the master of the panel. Uh, we uh, are very fortunate to have Damien who uh, panels the, the great 3AW Melbourne Breakfast Show, which has been the number one show for the better part of 30 years in this town. And you don't get that gig unless you're the absolute best in the business. And uh, Damo, uh, he's not on the mic, but uh, he uh, is uh, is making sure that this show is put together and edited uh, to an absolute T. So thanks, Damien. For what about the great Pasquale Panetta? Juventus, oh, oh Juventus' um, number one supporter in Melbourne. And the only Italian who, who uh, when we were talking about uh, uh, Italian food, um, he was trying to remember his favourite dish, and he says, "What? What's that meat sauce with the uh, the mitts? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that'd be bolognese, Pat. Yeah. So, uh, Patty Burnett, our good mate too, who uh, who was with us for for a long time. Yeah, too, he used so. to push the buttons, not very well, but we had a lot yeah. of fun with it. Yeah, yeah, we did. We, we absolutely did. Uh, so, well, we better say goodbyes. This is the, the extended, extended version. We want to thank our friends at Ace Radio who have taken us up as well, distributing us uh, around Australia. But, of course, we have many uh, listeners around the world. So thanks to our, our good mates at, at Ace Radio who are, are distributing this show and, and seeing us through. Our very, very good friends, our commercial partners, of course, Chemist Warehouse, uh, Mario Tascone, Rutene Farakawa, and the team, uh, uh, John Accardo from Hoyt's Food, who's just jumped on board, my very close friend, John Accardo, and uh, and the great guys at Storage King who were with us for many years, Michael Tate, Tony Scalius, and uh, and all the crew who, uh, who ensured that we could keep this show up and running. And of course, the most important people of the whole lot uh, who've indulged us in our sort of little back-slapping exercise at the back end of this episode, you who are out there listening to us, uh, thank you so much for supporting us and, and tuning in for all these years. Um, we really are very grateful. We've got some ideas coming up over the next few months to to, to broaden the scope of the show and uh, and we will hopefully make it bigger and better as we go. So make sure you subscribe to Box to Box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and make sure you join us again next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.